Uh, We're reading from Matthew chapter 10, um, from verse 26 to 33. It's on page 791 of the Pew Bibles. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. For the, uh, for the past uh, few weeks, we've been walking with Jesus as he instructs his disciples. Uh, it's, a, it's a great word uh, to depict what it is to be a Christian, this word disciple, uh, which is really the theme of this chapter. Um, it's perhaps not the very, very best word. I, I think the most foundational description of the Christian is child of God. But disciple comes a close second. And the reason it's so powerful is that uh, it intrinsically points us to Jesus. A disciple has a teacher. An apprentice has a master. In, in a very practical sense, being Jesus' disciple uh, means not just adding Jesus to your otherwise ongoing existing life, but rather Jesus becomes your life. The path for a disciple, in other words, is pretty clear. We're to be what he was. We're to walk in his footsteps. We're to imitate his way of life. We're to emulate his decisions. We're to reflect his priorities. We're to announce his authority. Uh, Florence Nightingale, the uh, famous nurse Uh, once wrote in her diary, and I quote, I am 30 years of age, the age at which Christ began his mission. Now, no more childish things, no more vain things. Years later, as uh, she ended her pattern of life and service, which were such an example and inspiration to so many people, she was asked, uh, you know, what did she make of it? What explanation did she have for why she had had such an impact on people? And she said, I can give only one explanation, and it's this. I have kept nothing back from God. I've kept nothing back from God. That is what discipleship is in a nutshell. Keeping nothing back from God. Just like Jesus. And it's that pattern of of master and apprentice that we see worked out here in real detail. Verse 24, a disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. And so what's the master like? Well, if you, if you reread the previous few chapters in Matthew's gospel uh, with that kind of lens uh, on, you'll see that Jesus is one with, with great authority and power And yet, whatever authority and power he has is an authority for the good of others, not the exploitation of others. 
Jesus pushes that all the way, spending and expending himself for others, taking our infirmities, bearing our diseases, the, the Son of Man with nowhere to lay his head. We've seen Jesus confront sin and evil and overcome it with truth and goodness, not fighting fire with fire and so making more fire, but nor simply pretending that it doesn't exist. We've seen Jesus reject some people and accept other people. He rejects those who are full of themselves and therefore who have no room for him. He embraces those who have little left of themselves, so beaten and broken are they by this world. The sinners, the unwell, the physically and spiritually oppressed. That's the master, and then he sends his disciples. The original 12 who, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, become apostles, sent ones, the kind of original disciples, and then likewise us in a secondary sense. And he sends his disciples to be little Jesuses all over the place. That's the deal. That's what it is to be a disciple, to be a little version of Jesus, to do the sorts of things that he would do, to say the sorts of things that he would say, to live the sort of life that he would live. And the whole section uh, here concludes with exactly this point. Uh, in verse 40, you see, whoever welcomes you welcomes me. Why, why is it that whoever welcomes a disciple welcomes Jesus? Well, it's because the disciple is being a little Jesus. So that whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Jesus calls disciples to himself and then he sends them out. That's us. That's the deal. Now, Jesus knows absolutely uh, and right from the inside that this is a task that will demand everything from us. Uh, this is uh, not just to do with the relatively simple things in life, uh, the life decisions of where we live and what work we do and um, who we marry if we do marry or don't marry. I mean, they're, they're, they're the relatively, in a sense, easy ones, actually. No, no, Jesus knows this is going to take everything, the really deep things about us, the deep things of character and habit, the patterns and rhythms of your life in the most saturated sense. And his assumption is that, like himself, we will have a stance, a posture that very deliberately faces the world. The, the least thing you could say about Jesus is that he was a private person with a private religion. I mean, of all the things you might sort of sum up Jesus' life, you'd say, very private person, very private life. I mean, it was very personal, sure. But Jesus was not a private person who had a private religion. He, he lived out that tension between uh, wanting things for other people because he knew that they were lost without them. That weighed on him permanently and at the same time not taking away from them the dignity of their own decisions. He took every opportunity to talk and walk the kingdom of God and call others to it for God's glory and for their good. He called sin in others sin. He didn't pretend or minimize or ignore or wink. He didn't just leave others alone to live their own lives. And at the same time, that was never at the expense of love. 
was never instead of service and sacrifice and grace towards people, it never constituted a distancing on his part. No, he had a a compassion, a gut-churned compassion on the crowds because they're like sheep without a shepherd, helpless and harassed. And of course, the point is that in this too, the disciple is not above the teacher. The slave is not above the master. We too are sent into our worlds, our families and workplaces and neighbourhoods and networks with precisely this same stance and posture towards the world. We too can't and mustn't be private Christians, private disciples with a private religion. The truth is that there's really no such thing as a private Christian. We're disciples of Jesus. It's kind of just as simple as that. And it was all last week, there are times when you won't be thanked for that. And at those moments, you'll be as much like Jesus as you might ever get. Jesus was extraordinarily blunt. Uh, I'm sending you, he said, out like sheep in the midst of wolves. And you will be hated because of my name. I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves and you'll be hated because of my name. And what that does is it makes for an enormous character challenge for us. Have you, have you felt this over the past two weeks? Have you felt the sort of the tension really between the first week that we looked at what Jesus sends us out with compassion in our hearts and the second week that Jesus sends us out as sheep among wolves because to put it simply, as a sheep, how do you sustain compassion for wolves? I mean, you, you think about it for a moment. You're a sheep, you're out among the wolves, and how, what are you supposed to feel about the wolves? You feel angry. No, no, no. You feel like run away. You don't care anymore. No. The, the tension here of mission is to sustain compassion for wolves. To sustain truthfully loving and lovingly truthful compassion for people that may well despise you for the name of Jesus. Perhaps every bit as much now in our culture as in Jesus' time, even if it's less violent now. And so with his last words of this um, instruction that he gives to his disciples, he speaks to us of the two uh, deepest human Emotions, although they're not quite emotions, that's not quite quarter. They're, they're the two deepest operations of the human heart, of, of the human soul. Um, and says that the key to being a faithful and fruitful disciple is to order these two things rightly. To order your fear rightly, which is what we're going to look at this week, and to order your love rightly, which we'll keep for next week. Fear and love. Get those two things right your fears and your loves. And you'll have what it takes spiritually to be a fruitful and faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. So tonight we look at fear. Fear, of course, is a universal experience. Uh, Everyone is in one way or another fearful. French writer Albert Camus, philosopher, uh, once called the 20th century the century of fear. And uh, theologian Paul Tillich, in his book, The Courage to Be, uh, spoke of that century as being afflicted by and focusing on anxiety and meaninglessness and emptiness. 
a kind of dreadful experience of the loss of a spiritual center, which leads to an internal collapse. And therefore fear. Fear that our lives don't really mean much. Fear that we're not really of any great consequence. The fear Jesus addresses here explicitly is of a different order, uh, in some ways much more straightforward. It's the fear of physical pain and persecution of disciples who bring a deeply confronting message to a world far gone from God. The message that the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Caesar, your own personal little kingdom, whatever that might be, that all the kingdoms belong to, to God. That they're his, the kingdom of heaven. And, and yet at the same time, the, the antidote, the spiritual antidote that Jesus gives to fear is as relevant to whatever fears we might have of a less immediate physical danger as they spoke to that very practical fear in his own day. Because Jesus says very straightforwardly in verse 26 of chapter 10, so have no fear of them. Now, what, uh, the, the, this evening is, is a kind of a more meditative reflection on uh, these words of Jesus. Um, and I want to invite you to do some of that reflecting, um, in a sense, with, with Scripture open before you, with your soul open before God, and to just allow yourself to take some time in a way that we often, I think, find difficult to locate, just to begin this process of reflection. Um, where does fear operate in your soul? What are, what are the things that you're afraid of? And in particular, where is that impacting your discipleship? I've said it before, and I think it's a very significant thing, that the single most common command in the Bible, uh, the single most repeated instruction in Scripture is to not be afraid. That is a very interesting fact, I think. It's not to love God. I mean, that's there. That's plenty of times, right? It's not to love your neighbour. Again, that's there with lots of emphasis. The single most commonly repeated instruction in Scripture is to not be afraid. Because so often it's fear that prevents our obedience to the other instructions that Scripture gives us. It's so often overcoming fear that will enable us to live the life of discipleship to which we're called. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Because he doesn't just tell you, he gives us reasons. And here in particular, there are three. The first is in verse 26 and 27. He says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Uh, Jesus, up until now, has been instructing his disciples in relative private, actually. Uh, he speaks in parables uh, to the wider crowd, mostly, and there's, they're sort of puzzled and confused, and really, what's, what's he getting at? That's very interesting, but I don't really know, and what's it got to do with it? And, and it's all kind of secret, it's hidden. And Jesus says, what I've told you in the dark, you tell in the light. What you've heard whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Now, in those days, housetops were flat rather than, you know, like roofs, and they had gardens on the housetops, and you could yell at people uh, from the housetops. 
Jesus' point is, is fairly straightforward, actually. It, he's saying it, it might look like that to live as a public, open, on-mission Christian is a losing play. That that's to put yourself on the wrong side of history, that that's to back the wrong horse. But that's only because the kingdom of God at present is hidden and secret, verse 26. Just like the glory, the sheer divine glory of Jesus Christ was hidden under the pain and sacrifice of the cross. You look at the cross, you think, what? The divine son of God? The most powerful moment since creation? Are you serious? But the promise of Jesus here is that what is covered up will be uncovered. That what is hidden will be revealed. In other words, living a life of a public proclaiming disciple because you know that the disciple is not above the teacher and that the slave is not above the master and that that's how the master was, so that's how you're going to be as a disciple. To live that kind of life will be vindicated, says Jesus. This is the most basic antidote to fear, to take the long view. That in the end, you are on the winning team as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That the name of Jesus will stand victorious over all that is broken and ugly and wicked in this world, just like his resurrection showed the victory of the cross. That ultimately, you'll be proven to have backed the only winner over death. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid. You're on the winning team. Stand firm. But the second antidote to fear is in verse 28. Uh, This is a little more bracing. Um, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus uh, sends uh, the disciples out. He says, uh, here's how it's going to be, chaps. Uh, it's you're out there as sheep among wolves. All right, team, that's, that's, you get that? And um, you're glad, I know, that Richard last week didn't show uh, the video uh, of what sheep uh, experience when they're amongst wolves. Uh, but we had that picture of the wolf, right? You, saw, you remember that? And, and it didn't actually, you didn't need to activate your imagination with any great degree of enthusiasm to realise what's going to happen to little lammy out there amongst the wolves. Okay, and, and I mean, I... That, that, that would feel, that's going to be bad, right? That's just going to be bad. And Jesus says, there's something worse than being torn to shreds as a sheep amongst wolves. Get your big issues big and your medium issues, 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 issues medium. That's what he's saying. There is something worse than dying. It's a very interesting perspective, isn't it, actually, when you think about it. Really? There's something worse than dying? Jesus says, you better believe it. Dying, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. Wolves can tear you to shreds. But that's nothing on what the greatest enemy can do. You fall into the hands of the evil one who can destroy both body and soul in hell That's much, much worse. You, you make sure you fear the right thing here. 
Um, you can fall into the snare of the evil one, notice, by distancing yourself from Christ. You see how Jesus puts it in verse 32, Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. You, you want to be a private Christian with your own little private religion, personal relationship with God? Jesus says, be afraid. Actually, be very afraid. I think this is incredibly insightful. Jesus takes it for granted that fear is an unavoidable human experience and, in fact, that it's right to be afraid of things. The Bible never says, uh, eject all fear from your life. That's not the point when it says, don't be afraid. No, the, the only way, according to Jesus, that you'll ever overcome any one fear is by holding something else to be even more fearful than that. To rightly order what it is you're afraid of. Be afraid of the right thing in the right order, Jesus says, and you'll get the dots joined up in your life. Well, the, the third reason uh, that Jesus gives us for not being afraid of them is in verse 29 and 30. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. And here I think is the ultimate basis for living a dangerously public life on mission for Jesus. Jesus sends you out. He says you're going out there as sheep in the midst of wolves. He says, don't, don't, don't pretend that it's going to be anything other than that. And when things happen to you, you can be assured of one thing, that nothing that happens to you is outside the all-seeing, all-loving providence and goodness of God. Um, apparently, and I didn't, I didn't know this uh, until recently, apparently there are um, not millions of hairs on your head. Uh, there are roughly 140,000, uh, give or take a few thousand. And uh, when I was speaking to the eight o'clock congregation with some fairly um, elderly gentlemen in the congregation, um, we all joked about how we probably had quite a few less than 140,000 uh, hairs on our heads. And the point is this, God keeps track of every single one of them. It's an image of how close, how absolutely with you God is. Or birds, I suppose birds die around the world all the time, um, virtually worthless, though virtually worthless as they are, God knows and cares about them. And, and Jesus says, I think kind of with, with humour, this is tongue-in-cheek, right? Um, you, you're of more value than, than many sparrows. I mean, really, lots of sparrows. Lots and lots and lots. Like 12 or something like that. You, you are definitely worth more than 12. And everyone's kind of going, ho, 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 Yes. Of course you're worth more than many sparrows. In other words, whatever pain you might experience in being on mission for Jesus Christ in this world, of having that kind of same stance and mentality of proactive engagement with people, of 
actively hunting for and looking for and being on the front foot in regard to opportunities to say that you're a Christian and engage with people, as that brings pain to you, in whatever form it might be, the one thing you know about that is that that is not because God is disinterested in what's happening to you. It's not because God is unfamiliar with your plight or has somehow forgotten you. He's close enough to you to separate one hair from another and give each one a number. He knows you like that. That's how close he is to you. So trust him when he sends you out as a sheep among wolves. And don't be afraid. I recently uh, saw this instruction of Jesus lived out kind of right in front of me in a, in a meeting in, in real time. Um, as you may know, I serve as part of an organisation which uh, plants new churches around the world. It's called City to City. And I was recently at a meeting of our global leadership team on which I serve, and our China leader was there as well. Uh, you may know that uh, in some parts of China, at least, uh, right now, there is a pretty significant clamping down on Christianity and, in particular, on church leaders. Uh, from time to time, buses will arrive full of police. Uh, they will all pour out. Uh, they will just arrest without warrant, nothing sort of silly like that, uh, an entire church gathering, uh, and just take them and ship them off to jail. Um, I was in this meeting and my uh, friend in the room who lives in the United States uh, for various reasons but goes to China frequently for the city-to-city work um, said that the previous week to when we were meeting together uh, he had sat down and made a complete list of all his you know, kind of bank accounts and savings and superannuation, all his insurance policies, uh, all his uh, internet usage, his usernames and passwords. He'd written it all down. I mean, you think about what that would take to kind of get it. He ran it all down in order to give to his wife. Why? Because he fully expected that, if not the next time that he went to China, then the time after, he would be arrested. That's just how things go for disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's a very, it, was a, it was a deeply moving and confronting experience to be with someone who might not be at our next meeting because he's rotting in some prison for following Jesus Christ as a disciple who's not greater than the teacher, as a servant who's not greater than the master and who walks with Jesus in being falsely arrested. That kind of sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Um, a little before that, uh, I was in a similar meeting and news came through of some church pastors who'd been arrested without notice and we got a, a WhatsApp message. WhatsApp, I think, is uh, used in China mainly because it's encrypted. Is this right? And so that it's actually more secure. So we got a WhatsApp message. And so what is it that when you send out a WhatsApp message praying for your friends who've been arrested, what do you, what do you ask them to pray for? What do you, ask, you, know, you send it out to the world saying, please pray. What is it that you ask prayer for? Um, I cannot tell you how moving it was the, the, the message came through saying, pray, yes, that they would be released, but even more than that, pray that through their imprisonment we would all be made bolder 
and the gospel would go forward even more because that's how it is in China. So it's quite an interesting thing to pray for um, brothers and sisters in Christ who've been arrested and not really be praying for their release because you're praying for something more because that's what they've asked. Because that's how it goes for disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, right now, uh, because of this uh, sort of clampdown on Christianity, because it's been so explosively expansive and represents a threat in some ways, I suppose, um, that many churches are facing a decision. Uh, they can go sort of deeply underground by splitting the church. A house church often has not just like 10 people in it, but 50 or 100 or 200 people in it. I don't know how they fit in the houses, but anyway, that's, that's what they, they, they do. And one way to, to, to respond to this would be to go kind of deeply underground by splitting the church into all the little small groups so that no one was really identifiable. Or they can stay public and risk arrest, but be less fruitful. And, and to hear that the choice that this network of churches is making is to say, no, a disciple is not above the teacher. A slave is not above the master. I mean, what were the footsteps that Jesus took? Where did they lead him? Is it going to be any different for us? We are okay with that. And so they're not caving in an inch. They're disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, for most of us, our fear is not of physical hurt or harm. Uh, you are unlikely to be arrested for being a disciple of Jesus. For most of us, our fear is far less specific, although in its own way far more pervasive. What is it that keeps you from being more on mission for Jesus? More outspoken, more public, asking people more questions, engaging more with spiritual issues, taking up opportunities more because they exist all around us in the culture. I mean, I mean, if you've been with people today and haven't talked about the royal wedding and haven't mentioned the sermon and haven't found a way to talk about the love of God in Jesus, I mean, what are you doing? What are we doing? It was, it was there on a plate for us for about for the 100 million people who watched it. If you didn't watch it, it's even better because you can ask someone about it. It's given to us on a plate to speak of Jesus in our culture because they hate us so much. It's great. It's awesome. What is it that keeps you from being more publicly on mission for Jesus Christ? It's fear, isn't it? So much of it is fear. This kind of pervasive relational fear of rejection of looking faintly silly or backward or socially unacceptable. And I don't think there's any point pretending about it. It's just, it's there, it's real, it, it actually, it hurts. It's, it's miserable to be thought of as a fool. There's, there's no fun being thought of as a bigot. No one wants to be judged or pigeonholed, especially if that actually costs you, and it may well cost you, not, not imprisonment, but it might well cost you at work as people just kind of marginalise you. It might well cost you in your apartment block or your neighbourhood as people avoid you or, or disengage with you. Of course, and it's worth saying every time we talk about this, this is not about being a jerk for Jesus. Okay, just to make it clear, 
The idea is not that you're just going to smack people in the head every time you get an opportunity to talk to them. Don't be a jerk for Jesus. Remember, you're to be a snub. Right? As wise as a snake and as innocent as a dove. Incredibly winsome and attractive, a snub. So Jesus is not saying, be a jerk for me relationally incompetent or rude or tactless. No, what Jesus is saying is don't let fear rule your decisions about these things. Don't let fear be the pattern shaping experience in your life. Don't be afraid. And don't be afraid just as he was not afraid. Because he did not fear those who kill the body only. He feared the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And actually, he did not flinch from it. He took it all the way to the very end. He took your and my hell upon himself. He took it for us. He took the real hell. And what that means is that we in him have the spiritual power to endure the small little H hells that we might face in the mission that Jesus sends us on. Whether that's a bit of social embarrassment or awkwardness, whether it's marginalisation and rejection, or whether it's imprisonment and corruption. Jesus says, have no fear. Be my disciple Live my life, serve my mission. Uh, fear, as I say, along with love, is just one of the great kind of forces in human experience. Fear repels the soul, love attracts the soul. You withdraw from what you fear by a kind of unstoppable instinct and you move towards what you love with perhaps an even more powerful drive. You get your fears and your loves in proper order to each other and to all the other things that you fear and love. You get your fear and your love in proper order, rightly ordered in your life, and you will be the disciple that Jesus calls you to be. You'll be a disciple like the teacher. You'll be a slave like your master. I read some time ago of an African pastor who um, was overwhelmed by a mob uh, who demanded that he renounce his faith. He refused. And the night before they murdered him, he wrote uh, some lines on um, a scrap of paper. It's, a, it's in a different style from us. It's not particularly how I think we would write. But listen to this voice of a disciple. He writes, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense and my future is secure. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, Preach till all know and work till he stops. And when he comes to get his own, 
he'll have no problems recognising me. My colours will be clear. It's fear overcome, isn't it? To write that the night before you're shot. His colours are clear. And I guess I want to kind of try and capture this by, by giving you a kind of an image. Imagine if your life uh, could be captured in one drawing, in one painting. Imagine if a, a master artist could bring to the canvas all, all the kind of richness and complexity of your character, of your decisions, of your priorities. Imagine he could highlight the threads that run throughout and bring out that which kind of really stands out. Imagine your whole life could be brought to one canvas. What I invite you to reflect on is, what would that be like? What kind of picture would get painted? How clear and distinct would the colours be? Fear resisted in the confidence that a faithful Lord inspires. Or would our lives have just a little bit too much blurring in them? More than a little grey and brown, the colours all mixed up and indistinct. Hard to make out exactly what it was that you stood for in your life. Who it was whose footsteps you are following in. Christian writer by the name of uh, Wilbur Rees once wrote somewhat sarcastically, he said, "Uh, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. And Jesus says, I have so much more for you. I have so much more for you than a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine for your life. I've got mission for you. I've taken your hell for you so that you can be unafraid. Unafraid, not living life with a little bit of God, but a disciple of Jesus Christ in whom the life and the mission of the master is absolutely evident, gloriously unafraid. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that you do not send us to anywhere you have not gone. And in fact, the reality is that you have, in going before us, protected us from the worst of all things. We pray that you would so fill our hearts with the knowledge of your grace and goodness, that you would so fill our vision with a picture of the glorious kingdom of heaven, that you would so fill our souls with a confidence in a heavenly Father who is as close to us as to number the very hairs on our head. That we would fear the small things only a little bit and the medium things only a medium amount. And we would fear you, our great Lord and Saviour, 
with a holy fear. And so walk in your footsteps. And we ask it for your glory. Amen.